Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that mercy found us. When we were not seeking you, you sought us. When we were bound in the chains of our own sin and in the prison house that was dark, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and we woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. Lord, we give you glory and praise for the fact that those who can say they are Christians, children of God, sins forgiven, saved, say so because of your grace. And you are to us a most precious Savior. I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will become precious to all this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Throughout the summer, we're doing a study in the book of 2 Peter, and we're calling it, How Then Should We Live? 2 Peter ends with this focus on end times, the fact that the earth is going to be destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth will be established. And then ask the question, because of these things, in light of these things, what manner of people ought we to be? How should we live in light of eternity and the soon return of our Lord? So it's a good question to ask. It's a better question to answer. Answer with a life that lives in obedience and devotion to the one who saved us and to the one who has redeemed us. I want to read the first four verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. If you would follow along in your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. We'll stop our reading right there. And as we go over those first four verses again, we notice that the word precious is used two different times. Precious. If you would count the English occasions of the word precious in the NIV, New Testament, you would find about 11 occurrences. Five of those are in the book of the Revelation. And they talk about precious stones or precious jewels that are used to make up the wonderful kingdom to come, the city of God. The other six occasions of the word precious are all found in Peter's writings, first and second Peter, precious. I have to admit to you that the word precious is not one I use very often. Because in America, at this time in our culture, the word precious often means adorable, right? 
And it's just not a word I use a whole lot. But, but we do use it sometimes. For instance, if, um, if a person has a beautiful little dog, you know, and it's kind of cutesy, it's adorable, someone might say, oh, that's precious. The dog is precious. I have a different view of dogs, but some people think indeed they are precious. Um, or a little child who's a bit precocious, you know, and at the dinner table is asked to say a prayer, so they start out with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, whose name is Art in heaven, you know. And people say, oh, that's just so precious. You know, they didn't get the words right, but it's adorable. And then I read my Bible, and I see the word faith and promises, and I think, are these adorable? And what I, what, I've not, what I don't realize is I've taken a common definition and inserted it, wrongly so, in the biblical text. What you have to do when you study the Scripture is to find out what the words actually mean, what was their intended meaning. So behind the word precious, and this is consistent in the New Testament, you have a definition more like this, something that is extremely rare or very important. Now, we do talk about time that way, don't we? I, I can't put that into my schedule. My time is too precious, too rare. I have to guard it. Or of something that is of great value, of high price. So a person gets a diamond ring, and they're all excited about it, and that's a precious jewel. And we recognize it's got extreme value to it. Or sometimes we talk about a person being a precious friend, it's because we highly esteem that person for their character, for their love and support of us. We cherish them. They're greatly beloved. And we'll say, here is my precious friend. Those are all good uses of that word precious based on the fact that it means something rare, important, valuable, something we delight in. Now, that's the way Peter uses the word not as adorable. In fact, the word literally means more than price. You can't put a price on this, this quality, this person, this, this thing, because it is so valuable. Now, Peter uses it almost exclusively, other than John in the book of the Revelation. How does he use the word precious? Well, notice he uses the word precious to describe our faith. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, and that should be verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So those who have believed in Christ have been given the righteousness of God, a righteousness not of our own making, but the righteousness received by faith. And Peter says, the faith you have is equally precious to the faith I have as an apostle. There are no different levels here. In Christianity, in Christ, we're all on the same level. We've received, this, received the same like precious faith. And here the Greek word simply means equal value. He also says in verse 4 that the promises of God are precious. And we're going to, Lord willing, talk about that more next week. What are the precious promises of God? What are we to do with them? How do we appropriate them? What will be the result if we make the precious promises that are extremely rare and highly valuable our dearest friends? 
That's what Peter calls them, the precious promises of God. Now, let's go to 1 Peter for a moment to see the other occurrences. 1 Peter chapter 1. And in the NIV, you won't see this, but faith is mentioned again. Or actually, if we're going chronologically, this is the first time Peter mentions it, and it's in verse 7. The NIV reads, These have come so that your faith, that is the trials you experience, come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, and that's the Greek word that is often translated precious. Uh, the gold which perishes, perishes, but your faith is going to endure, it'll be refined by fire. So the New King James has it this way, that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, your faith will be tested by fire and actually improved. I find that interesting, that the way he starts both of his letters, and remember these letters are the last letters or some of the last letters that Peter the Apostle would have ever written. He's martyred in 68 A.D. by the wicked Emperor Nero. And just before that, he writes these letters to the Christians who are dispersed probably among the churches of Asia Minor, the ones described in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And he says in, in 1 Peter, you guys are going to suffer a lot and your faith is going to be tested, but I want you to persevere and endure. The suffering is going to come from the outside. But in 2 Peter, he says, the suffering and persecution is going to come from the inside, from false teachers. But be assured of this, that you have a faith that's precious, that you have a word of God that's reliable. Know the false teachers and know that Jesus is coming again and ultimately all things will be renewed. And he starts out both of his letters by saying, let me, let me remind you that the faith that you have is extremely rare, highly valuable, greatly to be delighted in. It is beyond price. It's the gift of God. It's the privilege of knowing God. You know, faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is. Faith is vital. It's important. And now Peter is saying, I want you to view it as a precious, valuable commodity, a gift from God himself. Now, if we go to chapter 2, or no, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 19, Peter adds the fact that the blood of Christ is precious. It's the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I mentioned in the first service just before communion that if you aren't a Christian and didn't grow up in a Christian home, if you don't attend church on a regular basis, you might come into a church like this and hear us singing about the blood of Christ and really be confused. Wouldn't that sound weird if you had no context? Did you know that the early church was often thought of as being cannibalistic by the Romans, the secular Romans? I mean, they had wicked practices, and they had false gods, and they did wild things, but those Christians eat the body of their Lord. Wouldn't that put you off? How would you like to come to a cannibal service? And so many people just stood outside and would never venture into the meeting of the Christians because they had the wrong idea of what was happening. 
No, we're not, we're not praising gore. We're not excited about death. What we're excited about is what the blood of Christ accomplishes and what the death of Christ secures. And that's why we get excited about singing nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the death, the burial, the life, the resurrection of Christ. He shed his blood to atone for my sin, to wipe it away. I mean, what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 is pictured in the Old Testament. He's actually expounding upon a well-known story. It's the story of the first Passover. We studied it when we went through the life of Moses. Remember, Israel is in Egypt. God is sending plagues so that they will be released. The last plague is the death of the firstborn. The Lord says the death angel is coming through Egypt and every household is going to lose their firstborn child. Egyptian, Hebrew household, doesn't make any difference. Every house is going to lose their firstborn. But he says to the Hebrews, I want you to take a lamb without blemish and without spot. Sacrifice that animal, catch the blood in a basin, take a plant called hyssop, dip it in the basin, then put the blood by way of the hyssop on the lintel post, the door post, the side posts of your door. And the death angel, when he comes through that night, God said, when I see the blood, I will what? Pass over, thus the name. I will pass over you. And so Peter says, I want you to know that we're not redeemed, verse 18, with corruptible things like silver and gold. But we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. He's a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's the lamb of God. They had to take a lamb that was pure in the Old Testament. Jesus is the lamb without blemish. And repeatedly in the scriptures, we're told that Jesus has no sin. Peter says there's no sin or guile found in his mouth. Paul said Jesus knew no sin. Even people like Pilate, Pilate's wife, the Roman centurion, all give testimony, the thief on the cross, that Jesus had not done anything wrong. He's the lamb without blemish. The lambs in the Old Testament could only cover sin for a brief period of time. The Lamb of God in the New Covenant, the New Testament, Jesus takes sin away forever, and he's precious. And the sacrifice that he made was precious, extremely rare, highly valued, something we greatly delight in because of what it secures for us. Now, we get to chapter 2, and there is one other focus for this adjective precious, and it is the person, Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4, and this is where Peter really gets excited. He says in verse 4, as you come to him, come to Jesus, he is the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. He says, now we're like living stones. We're built upon Jesus the living stone. We're built into a spiritual house. We become a holy priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Verse 6, for the scripture says, quoting Isaiah 28, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Did you see that? The one who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame. Now, verse 7, to you who believe this stone is precious. He's mentioned the word three times, referring to Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus is the living stone. In verse 6, he's the cornerstone. In verse 7 and 8, he's a stumbling stone. To you who believe, he's precious. To you who don't believe, you just jettison, jettison him off to the side. You throw him overboard. You, you kick him off to the side. You reject him. And when you do that, he will become a stumbling stone to you and a rock of offense. Peter was so caught up with Jesus Christ that he had to use this word over and over and over again. Unto you who believe, Jesus is precious. Now I want you to note that Peter had two perspectives here. First of all, he wants believers to understand that Jesus is precious to God. Now that almost seems something that we would, we would know just intuitively. But he says that in verse 4. He's the living stone, and although men reject him, God sees him as extremely rare, highly valuable, greatly beloved, precious, beyond price. Why is Jesus so precious to the Father? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons that you could give. One would be because he is of like nature and essence as the Father. He is one with the Father, sharing the same characteristics and attributes with the Father. I and the Father are one, Jesus said. Because of all of that, the Father calls him precious. But I also think it's because of the work that Jesus accomplished. Think of it, when Jesus began his ministry, his baptism, was it not the Father who came by way of voice and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? Oh, he's precious to me. I've watched his life since birth, and he's been perfect. I'm well pleased. And near the end of his life on the Mount of Transfiguration, again, the voice from heaven came and spoke basically the same thing. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Obey him. He's precious to me. It's not only the nature of Christ who he is, but it's the work of Christ, what he's done. And I think it's God the Father who calls the blood of Jesus precious because of what it accomplishes. I mean, think of it. The Passover blood was primarily for God. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood satisfies the just demands of a holy God. The blood meets the requirements of redemption the price that had to be paid to actually remove sin and give a person new standing 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. God required this. And Jesus performed it. And he says, the blood is precious to me. Now, if God the Father looks at the sacrifice of God the Son and says it's precious, if he says it's well-pleasing and acceptable, should you not accept the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf? I'm speaking to some of you who of tender conscience are often wondering if you're still saved. Now, we're going to see in 2 Peter, you do, do need to make your calling and election sure. And we're going to talk about assurance of salvation resting on at least three things. But one of the things, one of the areas that assurance of salvation needs to rest on is this matter of trust. And you say, Pastor, my sin is so great. I come to the communion service and I don't feel worthy. To which I always say, good, you qualify. Because if you do feel worthy, you shouldn't come to this service. This service is for sinners. You say, but I, I, I'm just not living up to perfection. I'm not living up to what I ought to as a Christian. Well, repent of that and find forgiveness with the Son. But just because you're not perfect doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. Because your salvation is not dependent upon your work. It's dependent upon his work. Now, there's more to be said about this, but this is an important area. So you, of tender conscience, a real Christian, but the moment you sin, the moment you fall, the moment someone preaches some hard things, you begin to get all confused in your heart and mind, and you think, I must not be saved. Now again, we need to make our calling and election sure, but my friend, let me simply tell you this. If the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to satisfy God, don't you think it ought to satisfy you? Your sin is not greater than his love. Your transgression, not greater than his atonement. And if the Father says the blood is precious, it ought to be precious to you. And you ought to say, I trust Christ. As sinful as I am, I trust Christ. And there's nothing that can improve upon that position. Part of assurance of salvation is trusting what God calls precious, his son and the son's atonement. Notice the Bible says, to you who believe, verse 7, this stone is precious, Jesus is precious. Charles Spurgeon is one of my spiritual heroes. Um, if you go into my study, you'll see a picture of Spurgeon that is hanging on my wall. And uh, that, that picture, actually, for a while, was the only one of its kind in all North America because it was sketched by an artist in England who actually did it as a dedication for one of Spurgeon's chapels. He started a lot of little churches, and one of these churches was having a, a, a anniversary, actually, is what it was. And so this artist drew a, a new chalk or cold drawing of Spurgeon, and, and I saw it on the Internet, and it was amazing. And I got a hold of the artist and said, I'd love to have a copy. He said, you'll be the first one in North America. I said, great, and he sent it to me. And I don't know why I told you all that, except that's a picture of Spurgeon in my study. And I don't worship him. He had his faults. 
But there's a great story about Spurgeon when he started preaching as a 16-year-old, long before he became famous. He had a chance to preach at a little Baptist church out in the country, and his very first sermon was taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Unto you, therefore, who believe, he is precious. How precious is Jesus to you? How precious is Jesus to you? Why would he be precious to those who believe? Now, to those who reject, eh, they'd kick him uh, off to the wayside. It's a stone that the builders rejected. They look at it, they examine it, and they say, not good enough, and toss it to the side on a pile of rocks that they simply want to bury or get rid of. And that's what the Jewish leaders did to Jesus. They rejected the stone that was chosen by God and the one he called precious. But to us who believe he's precious, I'll tell you why he's precious, because we can't save ourselves, but Jesus can. All my work to redeem myself would be far short of even coming close. My only hope is the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. But when I trust Christ, he saves me to the uttermost. That means to the nth degree. You can't be any more saved than you are saved when Jesus saves you. He wipes my sin away. He gives me his perfect standing before God. The blood covers me, and God's judgment passes over me because I believe in Christ by his grace. Jesus is and every day I ought to wake up saying, wow, he died for me, and I'm his child. And today I get to walk with him. How amazing is that? But I'm afraid sometimes we take it as old news. <laughs> we don't get excited too much about the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. But if you believe, he's precious. Now maybe that's, maybe that's the reason why... The things of God aren't precious to you. The word of God, the communion service, these things don't move you, they don't shake you. The fact that you can walk with Jesus every day, maybe he's not precious to you because you've not believed in him. Because unto you who believe, one of the marks is you've, that you believed, he becomes precious. Extremely rare, highly valuable, greatly desired. He is precious because, as it says in verse 6, if you believe in him, you'll never be put to shame. Shame's a big thing that we like to avoid, right? Uh, I grew up knowing shame real early on. I think most kids do. One of the most shameful things that I remember being somewhat dyslexic and being in elementary school, I was probably the worst speller, and still am a horrible speller, but I was probably the worst speller in my class, and they did something called spelling bees in class. I don't, I don't know if they do them anymore, but they used to do them in old Leggett Elementary School over there near Pontiac, Michigan, and what they would do is that they would call on you, uh, they'd line up everyone on the side of the row, or room, and then you would have to spell a word, and if you didn't get it right, you'd have to sit down. And I was almost the first who would sit down. And it was so shameful that I made jokes about it. That's what people do to try to get rid of the shame. 
I can remember one time telling the teacher I'm not going to get up because I'm going to be the first one back here anyhow, so I might as well just stay here. Made a big joke out of it. But deep down there was great shame. If I knew they were going to have a spelling bee, I would pretend I was sick and lie to my mom so I didn't have to go and experience the shame. You ever had anything like that in your life? Unto you, therefore, who believe, he is precious. And you will never be put to shame. Now that is thrilling. And I don't know what shame may be your worst enemy, but I do know this, the greatest shame of all would be to stand before God in your sin with nothing to cover it, to be exposed before God in your wickedness and no hope of life. But if you believe in Christ, you'll never be put to shame. That's a blessing. So you've got the precious blood. You've got this confidence of acceptance before him. And Jesus Christ is precious to you because he's the one, he's the one who's going to give you victory. Think of it this way. Revelation chapter 12 says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses them day and night. Now, it may not be the devil himself. It may be someone who works for him. But do you ever have accusing thoughts, accusatory thoughts that come into your mind? Maybe about something you did do, maybe about something you didn't do that brings shame to your life. You see, what the devil likes to do is that when you as a Christian do commit a sin, you don't live up to the standard of righteousness. You say something, think something, do something you shouldn't do. The devil or someone who works for him is right there to say, I can't believe you're a Christian. You did that. You ever had that thought? Shame on you. Well, you must not be a Christian. And you begin to think about that for a while. And the devil wants you to focus on your shame and your failure. And so you try to do better. Maybe he says that. You know what? You need to try to do better next time. That's how you can lift yourself out of this horrible, shameful condition. And so you try to work your way in acceptance before God, and the shame just gets deeper and the guilt stronger. The Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before God. But they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, I think the best way to handle this, and this is going to really bring to you the wonderful preciousness of the faith that God has given to you, I think the way you need to respond to the devil is... Agree with him. Yeah, that's right. Agree with the devil. When he comes and he points some sin to you, I want you to say, you know, devil, I'm not going to argue with you. You're right. A Christian shouldn't do that. And I have failed, and I've sinned before God. But there's, there's a verse in the Bible, and here's the first thing you do. Gather some verses and know them in your heart and be prepared to quote them to the devil when he tempts you. That's what Jesus did. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. Be ready to quote the verses. So have verses ready and say, yeah, devil, I did sin. But the Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Use that verse on him. And then secondly, you overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? Don't try to be righteous before the devil in your own works. 
Accept the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all of your sin. That's what you need to do. And I guarantee you this, if every time you're tempted and you fall and the devil accuses you, if you go right to the word and right to the blood of the cross, the devil's going to have to find a new tactic because the old one's not working on you and you're getting stronger, not weaker. And you begin to revel in the one who died for you and is so precious. Unto you, therefore, who believe he is precious because his blood cleanses you from your sin because you'll never be put to shame and because the accuser, the brethren, can be silenced every time you rest in your wonderful Savior. And he's the one who lives in you and he's the one who guides you and so many other things unto you who believe he is precious. You know, salvation is free for us, but it costs God everything. And that's what this communion service is all about. I, I hope you go from this place free and praising God for a precious Savior. But remember, it cost him his life. There was a preacher who used to go down into the deep coal mines of England and preach to the miners there, the Cornish miners. He said, you knew, you knew you were getting through to a miner when you saw a white channel appear on their face. Their faces were filled with black coal dust, and when they began to cry, the tears would create white channels on their face. And the preacher said, you know you're getting through when you see the white channels on their face. He finished, the workers went back to work, and he was on his way back up the elevator to the surface. He didn't want to get lost, and so the foreman was taking him back to the elevator, and he thought he would buy up the time, make good use of the time. So he said to the foreman, what'd you think of the message? The foreman said, too cheap. I can't believe in any religion that's so easy. <laughs> the preacher just let that kind of linger for a moment, and then they finally arrived at the elevator, and the preacher said, hey, how do we get out of this place anyhow? And the foreman says, just get in that elevator and go on up, and the preacher said, that's too easy. Too cheap. I mean, I didn't build it i didn't pay for it Is, isn't there some way i can work to raise myself out of this hole he said no it's really easy just get in the elevator boom you're up to the top in a few in a few seconds actually preacher said well well didn't didn't this cost somebody something and the foreman said oh yeah the people who built it it cost them a lot someone even lost their life to dig this shaft 1800 feet down into the earth and to design it and to establish it. Oh, yeah, that took a lot of work. It cost them dearly. But for us, getting in and out is, is easy. <laughs> of course, you know what's coming next. The preacher said that's the way salvation is. You think it's easy because you only see your part. It's free for you. It costs Jesus his life. And when you believe, Jesus becomes precious to you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray this morning because of the communion service and the word of God that we will realign in our own hearts and lives our estimate of what is truly valuable. Let it see that it's faith and your great promises. And it is the Son who shed his blood who is both precious to you and to those who believe. The living stone. May he become our cornerstone so that one day he will not be our stumbling stone. 
Cause people this day, Lord, to turn to Jesus. No matter how great and how awful their sin may be, to understand that there is one who can wash all that sin away and give them life that never ends. For this we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.